That was Margaret Atwood from an interview later in the programme. This is Story Etc. I'm Tom Crowley. This month we're talking about myth. In an age when a funny tweet can be seen by half the people on the planet if it gets enough of a boost, and where a teenager with a YouTube channel who talks about figs can find millions of subscribers, we've certainly come a long way from the origins of storytelling in the oral tradition. When everything is documented and easily accessible, the art of decoding and then reconstructing a story might seem less necessary. But the tradition has expanded, and is deeply woven into not only the fabric of society, but also the human mind. Think of your excited friend telling you the summarised plot of a film they just saw. I'm here with my co-producers, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. Uh, Jenny, what do you think about when you think about myth? I think about myth as being something which is somehow inherent. I think myths have come to mean something integral. I I think there's, when you think about myth, there's not many story types. If you're thinking about particular tropes that will come back to myth, they do lead themselves to to adaptation because of the need to modernise. I think potentially we have got ourselves a sort of set of stories which we then have to adapt to current life. But the myth we sort of go back to is always going to be the same one of six. The same fundamental... Same plot. ...myth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Elna, what about you? I agree with that. And I also think that I think about myth in terms of being a structure upon which we hang our modern stories. So a set of ideas which we do come back to again and again, but which are potent enough for us to be able to spark off from as well. So they're simple, but distilled. What do you think it is about myth which or myths which makes those stories so adaptable? I think it's because of the nature of their transmission. They've often become boiled down to something. Mm. Almost absolute, the integral parts of myth are vivid and evocative. Marcella Ward is a teacher, academic and theatre maker based in Oxford. She specialises in myths and the various interpretations thereof. I met with her to discuss what's so important about the classical myths and the manner in which they were spread and what we can learn from these ancient forms of storytelling today. I'm um, Marcella Ward. Um, I, most of my life I'm an academic. I'm finishing up a doctorate. I write on blindness, myths of blindness specifically in the theatre. Um, the rest of the time, I'm a teacher. I teach classical civilization in a school. I write versions of classical myth, mostly for children, and I'm a theatre maker. I make versions, um, usually versions of ancient myth. Yeah, I'm interested in the gaps in those myths and how we, the stories that we tell, not from the text that we have of the ancient world, but from the holes that we that we have in the text. So I was thinking just this morning, actually, about Europa. The myth of Europa. Now, Europa is not a nice myth to talk about because it's a very, very horrible um, rape myth as we know it. So Europa, um, she's a young woman. Zeus falls in love with her, turns himself into a bull in order either to steal her away to Crete, um, where he will sort of rape her and enslave her, or to seduce her so that she falls in love with him and then willingly goes with him. But in terms of, you know, what that myth 
means for how we think about the sort of mythical origins of Europe, it matters to me hugely whether this is, uh, you know, a, a myth of, of sort of forced slavery, a myth of rape, or whether this is actually a myth that is showing you that if somebody took a different form, you might love them. I mean, that, that idea that two things which might otherwise be opposed, if they didn't make up this partnership if they if they didn't sort of willingly decide that they were going to get on that seems to me at the heart of what Europe sort of is ideologically and sort of mythically speaking um so yeah it matters to me hugely which version of that myth we read what do you see as the adapter's responsibility in tackling a myth which you know is ancient but also which has a number of different interpretations or even orders of events Mm -hmm. um I think you have a duty not to present something as singular when in fact it's plural. And I didn't realise how important I thought that was until very recently. But I think, you know, part of why myth is so important culturally, not just for children, but but in a large part for children, it is, is because it shows us precisely that things are not straightforward. There, there isn't one story. Um, and even in sort of very, very old ancient tellings of myth, we very often have a narrator that says, well, it was told to me in this way, but, you know, I heard it this other way. So, yeah, I think you have a huge duty, not so much to be accurate with the facts of the myth, because, um, you know, when you're talking about ancient myth, you're often talking about something where there are six, seven, eight, nine versions of the same thing. Um, and sometimes it's something that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which name specifically we use for a character. I mean, in a lot of cases, probably not. Yeah, but I, but I think, um, I think what really does matter is is being honest about the the vast plurality of what you're dealing with, and not presenting something as simple when it's not. You know. So I don't, I don't just mean we have a responsibility to the different versions of the myth, but we have a responsibility to the way that myths encompass so many different ways of thinking about the same thing as adapters, I think. I think I always think first about whose story this is. Um, And often the answer I get is really disappointing because often the answer is, um, well, it's this kind of male, relatively middle-class poet figure that Homer has invented in order to tell us this story. Um, So I often will go and look for the voice in the myth um, that I think has something something different to tell or has a kind of a specific view on this story. Um, And, you know, like, for example, in the myth of Orpheus, there's a there's a sort of bit before the myth of Orpheus um, where there's a town called Licorea and and, um, we get a story of how people ended up going to Licorea and it's a story about flooding. um, And there's a small girl in that story um, who you know, it is essentially the one who finds the town and she doesn't have a name and she's never sort of, um, she, she doesn't become kind of canonical in any way. But those kinds of voices are the voices that I am often most interested in because, you know, they're first of all the ones that will tell us something different. I mean, there's no point um, adapting a myth exactly the same way as Milton adapted it or Shakespeare adapted it or whoever else. Um, they give us something different, but also... Um, something that we will identify with I think and and that is a huge thing for me is is not presenting ancient myths as if they were far away or as if they were um difficult to grasp hold of um 
because they're not on the whole. On the whole, they're incredibly simple stories and they're stories that we already know. I mean, they're, they're part of who we are. They're part of how we think about things. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's what I do, first of all, is, is think about who can tell me this story in a way that I will understand it or in a way that I'll feel that it's my story and not someone else's. Um, and then, I guess the honest answer is then I'll often get rid of a lot of detail. I mean, it depends who I'm writing for, but um, I'll often, um, you know, think about what's the arc of the story? What's the what's the journey? Where's point A and where's point B? And, and when it's ancient myth, it often is like a, a literal journey across various oceans with, you know, various um, detours in between. Um, and then things that, or elements of that myth that get a point on that journey then really have to earn it because um, in a in a sort of very boring sense, we're not writing an Iliad every time we tell a myth. So, you know, there simply isn't space for every single aspect of that story. And also I think, especially children's um, attention spans are very different to, I don't know anything at all about the attention spans of children in ancient Greece, but they didn't have smartphones. So, you know, the chances are that that's, they were very used to listening to these very long stories in a way that we aren't. So very often, um, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll make stories sort of earn their keep. Uh, and if they don't, then, you know, if I can tell the story without it, then it has to go unless it's doing something specific. Um, yeah, so then I suppose I've, I've got a voice and I've got a journey and I've got a plot arc. Um, and then I'm sort of not too afraid to not to make modern, that's the wrong term, but to kind of contextualise, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't think that we should be reverent towards these stories. I think we should trample all over them and throw them in the air and cut them up and retell them exactly as we, we want to. Yeah, so, so I can absolutely see aspects of myth making their way into the way that we not just tell stories, but the way in which we sort of experience the world. I mean, every time you um, take out one of those 50Ps from your pocket, you see Britannia on the 50P, Britannia being this sort of ancient mythologized goddess of Britain. I mean, th those things are so much part of the way that we imagine our place in the world, I think. Um, but that that doesn't lead in the same way to oral storytelling. So I suppose, yeah, I suppose we experience those things in a different way. And Perhaps it's a printing press issue. Perhaps it's that we can now print books so cheaply. I mean, would would Homer have performed the Odyssey if he could have, um, you know, made a Dover Thrift edition or made a, a cheap Penguin paperback out of it? You know, may, maybe not. But the flip side of that is we have this fixity to stories that the ancient world doesn't have. So we don't have the same compulsion to tell them and retell them and retell them till everybody knows them because we can keep them in a different way, which I suppose is, you know, to our benefit too. I think that in a more kind of global, political way, we have this big problem at the moment with um, thinking that everything has to be one thing or the other thing. Like, you know, very often um, when I go into schools and talk about feminism in academia and talk about the importance of having, you know, women in top roles in academia, people will say to me, oh, but, but you know, what about women being stoned in Saudi Arabia? And as if I can't do both of those things, as if as if um, it's not possible for me to care about both of them. But the implication is, but why do you care about whether schoolgirls feel that they can become professors 
when there are women being stoned in Saudi Arabia. And I, I think that's, I think it's, um, sorry, this is kind of getting away from myth, but I, but I think it's part of kind of click journalism that we're encouraged to kind of read a thing and see it as definitive. Um, whereas in the ancient world, I think there is that plurality, but at the same time, you know, Homer doesn't, he'll occasionally say, oh, well, this is how this myth was told in this way. Um, and he exists alongside, um, you know, the oral tradition of loads of different ways of telling that myth. And I think people were aware of that. But at the same time, um, those the stories that we have are canonical. They are the version of the myth that we know. We, you know, if I asked you what to tell me the story of Antigone, you certainly wouldn't tell me that she had a son called Menon. You, you would, would tell me the story as we know it. And maybe it's a survival tactic too. Maybe part of the way we we keep hold of myth and we keep it as something that's ours is, you know, to define it and to be exactly as you say, to be um, definitive about it. Um, but so, so it's it's two sides of the same coin, I guess, is what I'm getting at. You know, on the one hand, it's the plurality that that makes you want to fix it, but in fixing it, in wanting to fix it, you recognise that you want to fix it because there are so many different ways to retell it, I think. Plurality and ambiguity. Qualities we seem to be lacking in an age of 24-hour rolling news when everybody wants to be the first to have the definitive hot take on a topical issue or even on culture. Oscar Jensen is the author of The Stones of Winter, a novel of Norse myth told as fact, and its follow-up, The Wild Hunt. Eleanor Rushton spoke to him about tracing the span of human civilization through ancient myths and their retellings. I'm Oscar. I'm, I suppose for the purposes of this, I'm Oscar Jensen, primarily children's author. I'm also Oscar Cox Jensen, academic, in the sort of Ian Banks, Ian M. Banks style of no one will ever suspect nice. that these are the same people. Sneaky. We're here today for our myth episode and Stones of Winter. Stones of Winter Now. Yes, Stones now. of Winter Now yeah. Yeah, was the, the Yelling, yelling stones, stones. In case anyone has read it in that incarnation, is a reworking and a, a sort of reinterpretation, maybe, of, of Norse myth for children. Yes, I could start even here by quibbling about this reimagining Quibble thing. Quibble away. I don't know. I so these books, I would say, are magical historicism. Right, is yep. the brilliant genre I have invented for this. It's like magical realism, but being drawn from a historical. Yes, yeah. yes, that's one thing I really wanted to talk to you about actually, Great. because yes, I think you're absolutely right that reimagining isn't quite the right thing because it's it seems to be a kind of incredibly historically accurate but with the magic believed in and kind of practiced and that the world was immersed in is that that's exactly accurate? what i want it to be yeah. let's start talking about that practice of taking a world of myth that would have been a whole structured belief system and structuring a story on it and kind of imagining those characters whose worlds are implanted mm -hmm. in that Okay, yeah, I'll do it in, in little bits, maybe. Because yeah. this was an idea I had many years ago before I tried writing a book that wouldn't it be fun to do a historical novel but where everything people believed at the time was true. There was, there was an equivalence. There was no difference between what people believed to be true and what we believed to have been true about that time. Just sort of take it all as read and accept it. And I thought that was really interesting. Then, actually, stuff from my own academic research, which is sort of in the 18th, 19th century, really pushed that because I was doing all this stuff on the Napoleonic Wars and tracing people who would go around the country telling tales, selling songs and looking at 
how that world of sort of getting access to information worked. And it was amazing the number of times people who were giving you news of the latest battle or who had died would be in a small country farmhouse or cottage or something. And they would tell stories around the fire at the same time. And on the one hand, you'd be hearing about the Battle of Salamanca. And two minutes later, you'd be hearing a story about fairies. Mm. And all of these people, even well into the 19th century, who would... Sorry, this is getting far more on the... It's because we're in the British Library for listeners. Um, yes, good point. Here. So the, the noises you can hear are library noises. But, no, but also I'm in a 19th century world, which is, <laughs> which is bad. But yeah, people would be writing stuff. They would write contemporary political things and what we would now call folk tales mm. at the same time and, and do it all together. And I thought, yeah, if we want a true sense of the past, it's a world where all this exists. And who are we to isolate some aspects from the others? Yes, I suppose, who are we to keep our kind of modern hat on and being like, we know that's not true, so we'll just take this part to ignore the kind of spiritual element, the beliefs then that are so tangled together and jostling each other. Exactly. Mm. And the other spur was a very historical one because I had a big argument with my undergraduate tutor about the Vikings, (laughs) about um, we had one one week on Christianization, on conversion, on when um, Christianity came to the Northlands. And this struck me as just a really good thing to look at anyway, sort Mm. of, we're so used to Viking stuff where they go to other places and impose, well, mostly axes yes. upon people. Yeah. So I thought, what's going on at home? What's the reverse process? And my tutor really won me over with sort of, what is the thing that really makes the impact upon these communities? There's, there's a person who has a book and a cross and these totems that are deeply mystical and incredibly powerful. And there is nothing to fight against that and that clash of worlds. That was the real impetus, the clash. And that's maybe another thing there on sort of talking about myth systems. And especially when you said reimagining of Norse myths, because that instantly conjures up to my mind and probably most of us in a sort of Western, especially UK setting who've grown up with retellings of what we see as the Norse myths by Kevin Crossley Holland and people of a very set group of gods, a very set worldview. And it is been filtered through a Victorian structure, and we have these, what was the misstructure maybe of the absolute elites in this historical period? Yeah. And so I wanted to entangle, yeah, historical reality with belief, but also all sorts of different belief systems, high and low, as well as Christian, non-Christian. So from the historian's perspective, it's sort of the offering of new things that I think really gets people, because wherever you see Christianity being introduced in this world, it's always very much top-down, and there's this great bit in Russia, the sort of the great first king of the Rus in the 10th century, who auditions basically all the religions, because he thinks we need a religion that will enable me to impose my power. And this may be quite apocryphal, but he summons representatives of Islam and Judaism and Orthodox Christianity and Catholic Western Christianity all to come and sort of do a do an audition on, on what they want and sort of what can you give me and my kingship? What structures? And it's all about the new structures put in place, ways to um, deal with your aristocracy. Literally forcing people to be baptized is an incredibly powerful thing mm. for a ruler to do. And the populations, it's amazing how generous they are at the start with accepting these things. There's, there's a bit, I try to put it in an image in the in the first book about how sort of when you have a pantheon like that it will welcome anyone in so yeah they come in in terms that they understand yeah fulfilling a similar thing so the early christ in these communities and in anglo-saxon england or wherever is a warrior christ he will give victory on the battlefield they there are real intersections between say odin and christ and some of those representations but then slowly he will displace and these other functions will come in i was thinking before this interview about what I thought myth meant. I found this an incredibly difficult question. If anything, I think 
myth is very different to, to storytelling in, in a modern sense, especially anything post, post the novel. Because I think what myth offers is it doesn't have characters in the way we would understand them on the whole, um, human motivation, there's none of the psychology in there. It's not about empathy with other human beings. Myth gives us an interaction with something very much other, divine, supernatural, natural. Yeah. something big and outside the human. So from my perspective in these in these books, it was sort of putting that slightly awkwardly in touch with maybe more conventional storytelling things and things about real people and yeah. so on. So kind of almost big avatars of types of people and compartments of experience that people can pour themselves into or yeah. things they're going through into. Or... Yes, but also getting away from the self in some way. Right. And it's an encounter. And why I think a real attraction to so many people in a sort of secular modern society, particularly in the West, of myths of all cultures and places, is they do things that religion has and hasn't hasn't done, but parts of religion that, that are very much drawn from what we would now call myth. It's a really thorny, tricky place. But I think a lot of it is about you don't have to worry about those things necessarily. Yeah. There are myths that flesh out the personal very much, but I think a lot of what is attractive in myths the world over is not having to deal with that. It's not, it's not escapism, but it's a different form of encounter that's right. not present in a, a world of human relations and human interior thoughts. One, in, one interesting thing is originally that book, The Stones of Winter, had as a fairly central character the god Loki. Loki was a big presence, and in various dream sequences, um, Leif, the, one of the two main characters, have these interactions with him. And in discussions with my editors and agents, we ended up taking him out because he was taking over. So it was this precise encounter between maybe the archetypal sort of mythic deity who cannot be resolved in a sort mm. of modern negative way. That's, that's part of the big appeal of Loki, yeah. like his his character arc in sort of the great big Norse myth is, is really perplexing from a, from most perspectives. But he was, he, was, he was dominating and the two people who were meant to be at the centre of the story were getting pushed aside by the charisma and um, stubbornness of this other figure. So he was replaced with some stones. Yes, I think someone like Loki, who even someone with just a passing knowledge of, of myth would, would know and we have an idea of what that person is like. So you'd be surprised. Well, not by real people's knowledge, but by what maybe the book industry thinks is, is acceptable and where you need to put in information. I've tried writing actual just myths as well, and I think what appeals to a lot of people who want to do modern myths is thinking in terms of maybe a musical analogy. What I think really appeals in myths, especially if they're myths people know, or because there's a simplicity or universality to them that one can get hold of is they are then theme, and what you can do with that theme is, it's fine, it's there, it gives you structure, and what you as a writer are really concerned about is sort of the musical aspects of, of your writing, sort of um, rhythm, pattern, tone, timbre, and I think it comes quite close to poetry. Right, yeah, and that, that idea of them sort of making them memorable images and particular images, I think, from myth that kind of get burned into popular consciousness and must be from in so many of those instances because of ways they were put originally that they're the bits that lasted through the stories yes. in each translation they've there's been turned over and re-examined but those images have stayed because they were put in a kind of poetic and memorable way originally i think as long as there is a language in which there is a word like this it'll be used and it will be used in different ways because it can be pejorative it can be sacral i used to teach a series of modules for American undergraduates where I would always ask them what's the difference between a myth and a religion? Mm. Which is a deeply contentious yeah, issue. But really engages with 
temporal relativity, if you like, with changes over time, because things that may have been seen as religions at some stage and are now very much myths and vice versa, and that going in and out is really interesting. Mm. Not to make any kind of value judgment, but my sort of historicized feeling was, if a thing is written down and has some kind of hierarchy and set of priests who do something in society, it's a religion because it's, it's having a social formation. And it's a myth if it's more on the side of this is a story, maybe it's an oral existence. I don't want to mean that one is more important than another, they're just different practical ways of going about things. Yeah. And that will probably be the same in the future, looking back on things of our own time, in some way, however that's inflected. Just offer you the possibility that that's what's going, there's a, yeah. there's a mundane explanation or not. And a choice of how to read it. Exactly, and I feel that duality is present in most societies when it comes to, to these things. And to say utterly a thing is or isn't true is deeply simplistic, isn't it? We're sticking with Eleanor now as we present her reading of her own play, originally recorded at our live Story Etc. fundraiser at Vault Festival 2017. The play is about an ancient Greek goddess, one whose origins are suspected to go far back before the time of the ancient Greeks. This is Eleanor Rushton performing Thalassa. This is Thalassa, a sea story. Thalassa is a word that carries seas, brimming, spilling over its sides. It pours samphire on sapphire on sage, on deep bean green. All the greens you've seen come from me. Blues muddle hurriedly with stark foam. They whisper me to people asleep in their beds, remind them of the bellies they come from. The lassa, they say, is primordial, meaning, of course, that she got here first. These seas, hers, her, before they were swallowed up, by Poseidon the Great, Poseidon the Mega, Poseidon, that fork-wielding fucker who took my making and made it something it was never meant to be, a different sea. It was just us, Pontus and I. We made and we made. I worked quickly. He worked hard. The lines in his forehead gave me the idea for the imprints we leave each day on the sand. I recording his sighings, and after rows, I'd replay them to him. Why is this so hard for you, I'd say, and play them again, then again. They began to fit, to feed the sea we made. Pontus, even the sound of his name is neat and worried. He'd put in all the work that needed working. Each light-reflecting fish I made, birthed, named, he'd write down its DNA and copy it until the sea was full. They swam from my mind, wriggled from between my legs until the sea was full of fruit, a raging swell of living things, and I loved him for that. He knew his place. We worked well together, and a productive partnership is just what you need when the world's beginning. We gave it my name. Thalassa has a ring to it, soft sibilance that shushes everything. Gulls pierced the velvet sound, but not often, and not long. I exuded, drew my water cloak about myself, and together we scooped out depths and filled them until Thalassa stretched out across the world like a tablecloth balancing plate continents. While we dug cool canyons, titans scarred the earth with wounds fireful, oozing lava, spewing blood-streaked custard, vicious tar into still clean air. Everything they did was loud. 
Sometimes their clamoring could be heard where we were, but Pontus would sigh again. We'd get back on with it. Things moved on, and worship began. The little clay people couldn't just say thanks. They had to paint a face. We were piñatas. Hit us, hit us, hit us. Thanks, thanks, thanks. And they'd hold up fat hands to catch what spilled out. The others reveled in it, flexing muscles, preening beards, pouting mouths, so that each flat image made, each picture stamped on metal, carved in marble, would make them look like what they'd still be if they just got on with their jobs. The ones that rose to the top were the ones who wore themselves the brightest, the best, the lightest. The rest all milled about like children waiting to be picked for teams. Pontus and I didn't want to play. But infinite things are hard for humans. They need something to touch. Not enough, they told me, to stand with their feet in the surf, to let the edge of me lap at them and shout into the fricative roar. We know just the two, they said, to take the pressure off you. They'll do all the handshaking, paper-making stuff we know you don't want to do. They'll do the splashy part. Poseidon and Amphitrite. You've heard of them, no doubt. They get about. His lines weren't quite like in the statues, but he was well put together. I could see he'd made an effort with his costume. Foam white hair, curling in waves, clever. He'd come a long way from being a metal-bashing drone sticking his fingers down the throats of mountains. His trident was good, too, Three prongs, three types of water, neat. The world fell at his feet. Amphitrite was even better. She didn't want the limelight, she said. Just wanted to learn from me, stand up for the sea, leave us be. That's what she said over tea, her legs winding around each other, her mouth a slash of red, platinum hair, dark glasses stuck to her head. She paused in her gushing, head flicked to the side. She looked at the baby we'd made, Pontus and I. Thalmus, our pea-green treasure, tiny starfishes for hands, stretched out to count each life floating past his bed. He sat upon our work, a splash of verdant paint upon its peak, lovely belly, ranging limbs that seemed too long, reaching and reaching, already teaching us. His tears landed on my lip within the first half hour, and their salty starkness was like a waking up. I flooded our home with white crystals, a taste for those who came to toast the next painter of oceans. Her head flicked back, no need to tear her eyes away. They slicked easily back to her hands, Checked the fall of her dress, her reflection, and then at last met mine again. Sweet, she said. Piece by piece, she took it. Purveyors of the new ocean, a briny deep for all the family. She could not birth fish, so she pulled rumours from herself until a shimmer of gossip coated the ocean in a milky pall. 
She had pushed dolphins from her body, taken flying birds and made them swim and glimmer through the water, given the sea its salt savour. I heard them shouting her name from the rocks. And we just got on with it. I invented new lives. Pontus was getting tired, but still copied each one, holding it gently in praying hands laid out like leaves before freeing it among the others. The songs that sang their names were blocked out by the sea breath that sighed ours. And as their fame grew, so did our boy. If they just stayed names and faces, we could have stayed fixed on stitching the wet silk that ran through and through our four, now six hands. But they had brought some titan tricks did what we thought could not be done, and carved the water. They used metal and money to split up something whole and heaving into portions, giving little bits of sea to cities who piled them and swapped them like coins. The ocean, a mirror cracked, showing fractured reflections, broken kingdoms, pieces of sword, flashes of blood, no longer whole, harmonious sky, Grey into blue into green. They reeled it in, line by line, as fast as I could make it. Gave it to the right price to bury dangerous secrets. PR! The clay people didn't want to see it all. Things you can't imagine strew that floor. This isn't what the sea was for. They took what's underneath using gnawing titan jaws to glut black nectar through black straws, then mouths still dripping monstrously. They took Thalmus. We're the future, they said. If you want your boy to keep his oyster shell, let the sand run through his curling fingers. Leave him to us. He's ours now anyway. And children soon forget the sea that raised them. Pontus couldn't take it. He strewed himself into foam, and I watched, alone, our boy forget us. Poseidon placed his face beside his own in every temple and parade, a dynasty to guard the sea from mer-witches like me. The starfish fists began to close, those ranging limbs to thrash for the fun of seeing little things swallowed. I will not pour more children in this place. The clay men made their bed and they can lie in it. They do, because the water isn't kind, not ready to catch little swimmers the way it was when it was mine. I leave clues, the ache they feel when they see the sea is me calling them. Five times in every 10,000, I plant a mermaid in a womb, letting them swim in a mini ocean until they spill into the world, little fins or extra toes. More often than not, they snip them off. The mermaids that adorn men's biceps are bosomy, blonde, and Petrite saw to that, made sure my fishes were made little more than human that those swimming as they always did are clawed from their shimmering home, 
hauled out in nets, slicked with sultry oil. I'm not gone. I coat each shore, and some still breathe my name like feathers into dark. They pray the way they need to when my huge, heaving blackness, free at last from boats and surfers, is alone with itself, and I am salty and ancient. They see me bigger than anything and set their thoughts free to teem in my darkness. I stay for them and remind them that Thalassa has known them all her lives. Thalassa was written and performed by Eleanor Rushton. This performance at Vault Festival 2017 was recorded by Andy Goddard and Odin Ornhill-Marson. So, Eleanor, we've just heard Thalassa. Uh, what moved you to tackle this particular Greek goddess and what uh, was your agenda in bringing this new spin to her? I was asked to write a story to contribute to a storytelling night and rather typically left it fairly late. Um, but the ideas that had been bubbling around was I would like to do something that was a sort of modern or a rethink of something possibly much older and obviously, therefore, I started thinking in terms of myth or legend or, or folktale. And I was just kind of in a bit of a Wikipedia bubble. And I came across this primordial goddess, Thalassa, who then got replaced by the gods and goddesses that I had heard of. So Poseidon and that kind of thing. And I just found it so interesting that this, this word that actually, I mean, Thalassa means sea in Greek. Like the fact that this word and this figure who had been so fundamental had been sort of decharacterized and stripped of persona in favor of these other kind of popular famous gods and goddesses so I thought it would be fun to write from her perspective of how pissed off she is that that has happened. We're going to take a step away from western myths now and talk about those which have made their way here from other parts of the world. In a society as multicultural as Britain's, the prevalence of our homegrown stories and those of our more immediate neighbours can smother those from other nations purely due to the tyranny of the majority. However, plenty of creatives and academics are working hard to ensure that tales from all over the world are kept alive, including Banyan Tree Theatre, a children's theatre company based in Brighton. I spoke to Nyawa Bottomley and Adriana Lord from the company about how their collective was formed and how they went about presenting African myths on stage for kids of all ages. If you want honey, follow me. Honey tastes lovely. Every Hi, I'm Nyawa Bottomley and I am a producer for Banyan Tree Theatre Company. I'm Adriana, I'm a performer, singer. We're from Brighton and we are possibly the country's only all-female, all-black musical puppet theatre group. And we've been doing it since about 2010 and we do uh, musical puppet shows for children and we base a lot of our stuff um, on African myths. Kind of by accident, we wanted to tell stories from different cultures from all over the world. There's eight of us women and we're all from 
disparate places. Myself, I'm Zambian uh, British. Adriana here, she is from Cuba. So we've got loads of influences. I was working at a charity called Mosaic Black and Mixed Parentage Family Group. And the group had um, an under fives mother and child group. So most of us met there. And um, it just so happened that a lot of us were creatives, had a lot of creative interests, had an interest in theatre and taking our children to see theatre. So we were just kind of frustrated about the lack of things to take our kids to see that reflected them. So decided that perhaps if nobody was doing it, we should do it. So it was coming up to Mosaic's uh, 20th anniversary celebrations and uh, one of the volunteers at the charity, Rachna, um, had a history of doing puppet shows back in India, uh, working with women in rural communities, teaching them through puppetry about kind of women's re reproductive rights and health and all of that sort of thing. So she thought we should put a puppet show on for the kids. I think the first few ones that we did, um, they we chose them from established children's books. So just sat in uh, Mosaic's library, they've got a multicultural library, and went through the books and thought about what the message that we wanted to do was. Um, and I found this book called The Fire Children, uh, which has a very simple origin myth about why there are so many people in the world of different colours. So I thought, well, that's perfect for us, so we'll do that one. We quite often start with the songs. And we also kind of, our children, we've got... I don't know, about seven children between us, the oldest of which is nine, the youngest of which is four. And uh, when we first started doing it, we always had children at all of our rehearsals. So we had instant feedback all of the time. <laughs> so quite often we'd start a song and we knew if the kids started singing it after rehearsals and we heard it during the week and it was coming back to us, then we knew we were on to a winner. So the first show we did, we took well-known English nursery rhymes and basically just changed the words. It made it relevant to our kids. It meant we didn't, well, we didn't have the skills to do anything else at the time. Um, so we're going to sing this to the tune of Wind the Bobbin Up and you are going to join in. Yes, I am. Tom. Okay. Stoke the fire up, stoke the fire up. Bake the children hot, hot, hot. Build it up again, build it up again. Are they ready? No, they're not. I, I can't tell you how simple it was. Um, <laughs> Ratchana made the puppets, literally just drawing on pieces of cardboard. Um, we used all recycled materials because we didn't have any money, so it was mostly pizza boxes and kebab skewers. We borrowed a 30-year-old puppet theatre from somebody that we knew. None of us knew how to do any of this before we started, and it's just kind of grabbing hold of it and going, OK, this is what we achieved. Let's just do it by doing it and not really having enough time to really think about what we're doing. But from that process and from the reaction that we got from people who saw it, it kind of drove us to continue and to do more and to get better and people started asking us to perform at places so we said yes to anything that was free we did the library we did the town hall um and then we started selling tickets and realized that people would pay for what we were doing so i think after a while we got 
bored of doing that production um, and decided to do our next one, which was The Honey Hunters. So it was it's a story about how a little boy meets uh, the honey guide bird and the bird calls to him and says, If you want honey, follow me. And so the boy follows <laughs> the bird and along the way they meet lots of animals and all the animals join in the procession to go and find the honey. When they get to the honey, the boy climbs the tree, brings it down to the animals and he gives it out to the animals to share. Unfortunately, the animals don't want to share and they end up fighting over the honey and basically the end of the myth is that the animals are never friends again because they fell out over the honey. You're one of two songwriters for Banyan Tree. Yes. Uh, could you tell me about the other songwriter? Aldona. She was writing the songs at home and then we will meet and work out the, the rhythm with the, with the musicians and in a way it had an influence on the on the play because we were dancing to the music and part of the development of the story had very much to do with the music. And then we did um, Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears. This was kind of the cusp of us kind of realising that we actually had something good and having like a real amount of confidence. Um, once we'd done it we decided that we'd like to do it even bigger and better. We were lucky to work with a lady called Edith EO who um, used to work at the Arts Council and help us put an application together and then I think as time has gone on we have really been learning about the value of showing rather than telling and you know it's just about learning about how visual theatre is and there is more magic in allowing the audience to come to their own conclusions about what is going on and also kind of never underestimating children and their ability and in fact their need to find a story in things. A wonderful lady called Alison Lloyd has written our latest production Little Wing it's about a little girl who is one of the flying people. And in their culture, a very unique culture, the parents go away to a great fair, the great feasting and the making, where they get to meet other people and learn new crafts. And these are fixers and makers. And while they're away, they leave Little Wing in the forest on her own. And while she's in the forest, three dragons come along. And the three dragons um, have a big fight. And they essentially kill each other. And they end up on the floor and they're all in pieces. And Little Wing figures out that it's her job as a fixer and a maker to fix them and to make them better. So she climbs down from her tree and she puts all the dragons back together. However, she's done it wrong. So all the dragons are completely multicoloured. At the beginning you had a green one and a red one and a purple one. But when they're remade, you know, the green one's got a purple tail or and the red one's got, you know, green wings or whatever it is. And what they realise is through the remaking actually 
they no longer see the differences between them and they realise that they can be companions. And we did bring a little bit of mythology in it. So Adriana, we've got this beautiful um, dancing bird scene. We wanted to create kind of like a murmuration effect and we needed a song for that. So Adriana took some words from an Afro-Cuban myth. So we've got this song in Spanish, I believe. Is it in Spanish? It's a mix of Yoruba words with the way old people, old African people used to speak Spanish. The the words for the song are Centella que va bane, yo sumaré la sube. Centella que va bane, yo sube arriba palo. And these words come from uh, Oya, which is uh, a goddess, and she she has the power of controlling wind and lightning. And she's the partner of Shango, which is the the god of thunder and fire, and he was in prison because of his enemies, and then she saw in this magic pestle mortar that he was in jail, and she started to sing to try to create a spell to set him free, and she realizes that she's burning because she couldn't control the fire, and she changes the spell. And those are the words. And with this spell, she frees him. In in my mind, when I when I thought about it, uh, it has to be with little wing having this fire that makes her realize what is her function and what she wanted to do. Yo sumaré la sube, sentea que va a Yo sube arriba palo, yo sube arriba palo, yo sube arriba palo, yo sube arriba palo, yo sube arriba palo. Little Wing is showing at Brighton Festival. It's going to be on over one weekend, the 13th and 14th of May at four o'clock in the afternoon um, at the Warren. Evidently, the cultural significance of the myths of our ancestry is not lost on most people. And as Oscar said earlier, and Nyawa just now, there is still a desire among contemporary writers to create modern myths, or at least pieces which bear the trappings and the epic themes of the old fables. You might well know Felix Trench as one of the lead actors in podcast sitcom Wooden Overcoats as fusty funeral director Rudyard Fun. What you might not know is that he's an accomplished story writer and playwright, working in a vein reminiscent of the most classic fantasy and fairy tales. Crowley & Co., co-producer of this very podcast, has produced two of his plays for performance on the London stage, and we are now very proud to present a brand new monologue written and performed by Felix. The King. There was a train, moving. The windows were large and cloudy. In the corners were notices in many languages. There were clever ashtrays. The train shot along a long bridge, stone, a dark stone, grey and black and midnight. Occasional rain and, indeed, occasional railings. Inside, the upholstery had been blue. It was now faded to silver. On each cabin, a reluctant door. The train had travelled across the bridge for years, To the right, a 
a grey and yellow sky. To the left, the sea shone with stars. The cabins were empty. Shadows flitted over brass and dust. The dining carriage was set for supper. The lights were dark. The cabins were empty except for one. Cabin five, carriage E. Skinny legs dangled in the air, white hairs above the ankles. Man was naked. He held the remnants of a sheet about his waist. The man was naked except for the sheet. No, the man was naked except for the sheet and a thin circlet which he wore on his head. It was made of gold. Once upon a time there was a king, and he was wise, and he was just, and he was brave, and his subjects wished that he may live a thousand thousand lifetimes. And so he did. The train followed the curve of the world. One side was always night, the other side the grey and yellow sky, or sometimes pink, or sometimes red, on occasion green, on occasion all at once, the colours waltzing gracefully. Once upon a time there was a king who outlived his subjects who travelled the world to find philosophy. And so he did. The king had come to find his eyes were broke. He still saw shapes and, on occasion, hues, but precious little detail. He spent the years in thought. His wife, whose eyes had seemed akin to perfect almond skies... His sons and daughters played about his mind, their laugh and cry, attention-seekers all, their schooling sums, their swords and sciences, grazed knees and holidays up mountain paths, and fights at night to get them in the bath. Something woke him from his reverie back in the cabin. It seemed that the form of the light on the wall across from him, the opposite bunk, had changed. There could be a new curve, perhaps, flicking in and out of the dark, a bunched pile that suggested a head. Man hunched over. Ridiculous. No. The king tried to speak, but only little air escaped his chest. He tried again. A shift. Flicker. The light on the wall was paying more attention. The head flicked up. Maybe. But still he had no voice. Thought the king. The form kept his gaze. His confidence grew. Hello, he thought again, louder. A rumble, rhythmic from the wheels, and in them a voice. Your Majesty, replied the form. Yes, yes. Something familiar in its tone. 
Yes. Lord Edward, he thought. Is that you? Again, the rumble. Familiar. Your Majesty, Your Majesty, Your Majesty. And now that he looked closer, he could see the man better in the half-light. Edvard. A giant. A full head taller than the rest of his court, who laughed like a volcano. And now further down on the chairs, he saw another shape. And as he knew what to look for, it was easier. The light revealed slender fingers and a sulking face. Outside, a whale followed the train, then turned away. Pa His fool. His favorite fool had joined the journey down there on the chair. Oh, joy. My boy, a song, son, a joke, son, whatever you will, he thought. And as he looked with better understanding, the court formed in the carriage with light for flesh and shadows for skin. Here was Swithin, the leader of the guard, and here was Wolfric, and in the bunk below, why? Those were the ambassadors from other nations all sat together. How funny they looked. This cabin was far from empty. In that central chair below, the fool's head was angled up at his old master. His eyes flickered. The shadow from the doorframe changed his expression. Now happy, now sad, now angry, now wretched and in the next flicker of light the fool had reached up an arm. The shadow again, and now it seemed that the arm was closer. The king could almost reach it if he tried. It shimmered in the twitching sunset. The sheet around his waist was cold. The first time in who knew how long, he let it drop. He looked for the fool's hand. His fingers searched ahead, but all he grasped was dust floating in the light. He reached little further. He wanted to take his fool's wrist, haul him up. Below, the eyes watched, earnest. He reached a little further, and further, and further still. He was perched on the very edge of the bunk. The train shook, shook again, and shook him loose, his wrist caught on a ledge as he fell, scraping the flesh. A bright wound, shaped like a seven. He landed on his shoulder on the floor, but the train rolled him onto his front. When it had first been made, the floor was a thick sheepskin carpet. Today the leather was scrappy with black floorboards poking up beneath. The king shuddered and felt his temple. The gold circlet had fallen off, left above. His forehead pressed against the wall, and through a knothole he felt a breeze from below. It smelled of salt. Something moved, a rustle. He turned and looked up. From his old throne, 
The sour-faced fool glared down. His eyes glinted yellow and grey. Lord Edvard laughed a deep, woody rumble. The ambassadors whispered and pointed to light on their cheeks. Swithin started a chant and the guardsmen picked it up. Impotent man. Impotent man. The dethroned king tried again to speak, but could not. His lips shaped a silent wail. <sighs> impotent man, impotent man. Quiet! The fool. The rest of the court fell silent. The old man looked up with red eyes and saw a twinkle in the air. The boy wore his circlet. So this was his ambition. The boy he treated as a son raised as one of his own would depose him. He was to spend his life rotting in his own jail. Get off the floor, the fool, the usurper. He reached for the windowsill and pulled. At first nothing. Then aspic muscles began to shift and the man pushed and pulled until he rested against the window. What do you want? He thought. A song, man. The fool's voice was level. A joke, man. Whatever you will. I have no voice, thought the king. A dance, man. He stayed where he was. A dance, man. Still, he stuck to the window watching his breath. The others picked up the chart. A dance, man. A dance, man. A dance, man. Dance, man. The old king reached a foot into the centre of the cabin, and the other. The train juddered and he steadied himself. He moved with tiny steps through the aisle, a one-man waltz. Around and around he went, and the chant continued. A dance man, a dance man, a dance man, a dance man. Once upon a time there was a king, and he was wise and just and brave, and strong as a bear with a fearsome rage who was feared by all who challenged him. And as he danced, he thought of the dances he'd known. Colours everywhere. Gold and silver plaits. In its belly, a coal dropped. Ignited. A fire stoked, and as he circled the cabin, it grew. The court clapped their mock applause. He could hear the fool cackling and drinking. The feast? He could smell meat and smoke. Wine splashed his wrist. A dance man, a dance man. A second coal fell into his belly, and a third. The fire grew, and as it did, so did his steps. He moved with more confidence. The king was a good dancer. He let the rhythm take over, ignored the catcalls. He picked up the pace in his waltz. Step two, three, step two, three, step two, three, grab. He caught a sword in his fist. It was light as wind. Step two, three, swipe. He whirled around and slashed open the stomachs of the laughing ambassadors. The laughter turned to cries of fear as he hacked and thrust the blade around the cabin. And in their cries, he found his own voice. With an almighty bellow, he threw the sword at his fool 
who collapsed back into the shadows. The bodies melted away. The smell of dust and salt. The naked king screamed at the shadows. And the train carried on. The King was written, performed and recorded by Felix Trench with editing assistance from Odin Ornhill Marson. We are now delighted to present a conversation with one of the world's most authoritative proponents of myth and fairy tale, Canadian author, poet and environmental activist Margaret Atwood. If you're not familiar with Margaret's work, her best-selling novel The Handmaid's Tale is soon to be released as a television miniseries by streaming service Hulu. Her novels have won countless awards and she's widely regarded to be one of the finest speculative fiction authors working today. Eleanor Rushton spoke to Margaret on the phone recently, focusing primarily on her own adaptations of classics, in Hagseed, her retelling of Shakespeare's The Tempest, and in The Penelope Ad, her take on the myth of Odysseus. Margaret Atwood, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to Story Etc. This particular episode is one in which we're exploring myths and retellings, which chimes perfectly with your own retelling of The Tempest for Hogarth Shakespeare. And I was wondering if, to begin with, you could explain a little bit about how you approached writing Hagseed and the process of transforming The Tempest into a novel or a play within a novel. Yes, well, of course, first thing I did was read it. (laughs) And then I read it again, and then I got all of the DVDs that I could get of Tempest. So I watched all of those. And the Tempest, a lot of Shakespeare plays have had different interpretations, but I would say the Tempest has probably had the most. It is a play that allows for and has had a huge amount of interpretation, reinterpretation, variant stagings, people rewriting it in the 18th century. It was it was an opera primarily with some new characters. Mm. Caliban has a sister. Miranda has a sister called Dorinda. And there's an extra young man so that Dorinda can marry someone. Of course. So they added in, <laughs> they added in people to make it suit an opera better. And they also cut a lot of Shakespeare's texts and added songs. So that was the version that the 18th century preferred, and when they tried to stage the original, people didn't like it. However, it came back in the 19th century when Caliban was looked at in a different way. People were doing Rousseauian natural man Calibans. They were doing Calibans that that had their point of view of the world rather than an early 17th century point of view. And today, I would say, he's often viewed through the lens of backward looks at colonialism. Though you have to be a bit careful with that because he is a potential rapist by his own admission. Mm -hmm. So he's not noble savage entirely. Uh, He is given some of the most beautiful lines in the play. Shakespeare, as usual, is pretty tricky (laughs) and ambiguous, which is one of the reasons this play has had so many interpretations. So therefore, I, I got thoroughly into the original text. Then the question was, since the brief was um, a modern novel, how do you how do you do that? So can you set it on an undiscovered island? Very implausible. Yeah. We've discovered them all. There is Google Earth. <laughs> you're not yeah. going to get away with that, and you're not going to get... Uh, somebody marooned on one for 12 years. So I didn't think I could do the island. You could do, and people have done, an outer space tempest. 
that was my immediate thought when you mentioned Google Earth. Yeah, yeah, she said, why not go to outer space? Yeah. Well, that, that's where a lot of utopias and dystopias have gone. Mm. Uh, so originally they were islands. Then that real estate shrank, and, and sometimes they became undiscovered parts of South America or undiscovered parts of Africa. But as all of that real estate got taken up, they moved into outer space. But that presented its own problems. Were these, were these going to be human beings? And if they were, they would have had to have gotten there in a spaceship. Yeah. And then another spaceship would have had to have happened by with all of the enemies on it. So I kind of abandoned that. In fact, I abandoned it completely and went to the text again. And, and I worked backwards. So the last three words of the player set me free raises the question, set me free from what? And in finding out the answer, you realize that everybody in the play has at some time or other been imprisoned by somebody or something. That's what led me to it being set in a prison. And indeed, I'm about to see a Tempest set in a prison because the Phil and Lloyd production is going to of Brooklyn and I'm going to see it there. In Hagseed, the link between the sort of thematic idea of imprisonment and then the physical incarceration in a modern day men's prison. In the process of researching and then in writing Hagseed, what did you discover or did you decide anything about the, the particular relationship between imprisonment, either physical or emotional, I suppose, and creativity? Oh, you mean if you shut somebody up in prison, they're going to get creative? Well, I suppose, well, I suppose it could mean that, but the fact that the characters in Hagseed, and I suppose to a huge extent the characters in The Tempest, you know, the imprisoned Caliban is, as you said, the one who speaks the most beautiful poetry and then Prospero, physically incarcerated on the island, is making puppets with all the people who then come on. This kind of not approaching the problem in a prosaic way. So what is true of, of all the people you, you have mentioned is that uh, without, quotes, magic, they're powerless. Mm. Prospero without his books as Caliban says, is nothing, which does lead you to wonder why he would break his stuff and then get back on the ship with the brother who tried to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a decision I personally would have made. <laughs> uh, the brother has not said sorry. In fact, the brother doesn't say anything for the whole rest of the play after Prospero says, I know what you did, yeah. and I'm forgiving you for the moment. I'm not going to say anything about it for the moment. Well, that's pretty threatening. If you think of magic, Prospero's magic, as a way of solving his problem, that is the only tool that he has at his disposal. I was really interested in Felix's view of himself, his very strong identification with um, Prospero. Yeah, well, they, they both see, see themselves as failures. And yeah. it's pretty clear from Prospero's initial recounting of the history that it's his own fault. Mm. And if you're a um, duke and you're supposed to be in charge of a place called Milan, <laughs> it's not a good idea to turn it over to a second-in-command and go off and immerse yourself in magic studies. It's actually pretty selfish. Yeah. I've always found him a really, actually, unlikable character. And it's an interesting thing that one of Felix's aims was to absolve him to the prisoners as well and sort of, I guess, to us. Felix, yeah, yeah. well, he, he does say that it's his own fault. He sort of so owns he up got to it, himself but... into this, but now he's got to get himself out yeah. and he's got to get Miranda out. That's what he's bent on doing. And the questions come up, why, why doesn't he just kill these people? Yeah. Well, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be a good thing to do at all. So he has to make it so somehow that 
Miranda and Ferdinand get married. That's his best deal. But he doesn't want to just marry her off the way the King of Naples has married off Clarabelle. He wants them actually to fall in love. With which some magical help. Conveniently, <laughs> they do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you talked about Miranda and obviously in, in Hagseed she's a sort of she's a double figure, the daughter and the character. She's a, in, she's in the play. a, she's a triple figure. Yeah, I suppose the, the imagining of her. Yeah, so she's yeah. the Miranda in the play. She's the actress playing the Miranda. Yeah. And then she's the original uh dead Miranda and I had to solve for that uh conundrum too. How do you make it so? that a dad with a teenage daughter has not let this teenage daughter see another man. Of course. For all of her life. I mean, yeah. what sort of creepy scenario is that? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and since the island wouldn't work and we're not doing outer space, this was my solution. She had to be a sort of memory or ghost. Yes, yeah, a memory or, or, or ghost that, however, grows up mm. at the rate that she would. You've used myth in a more classic sense, I suppose, in a more overt way in so much of your work. So, um, in well, stories, uh, well-known stories. So there are several treasure chests of story. In fact, there are quite a few treasure chests of story in the world, but the ones that get drawn upon most of all and by Western writers are classical myth, folklore, like Grimm's fairy tales mm. and English Andrew Lang collections of fairy tales, and the Bible. So when you're reading literature that people wrote, say, from 1200 to 1970, hmm. you're going to run into those stories in various forms and with various references to them hmm. a lot. Uh, it is thought that the Cinderella story is probably the oldest one in the world, and it's found in many cultures. And what is with it? Different, different forms of footgear. Is it that sort of sense of continuity then that causes you to reach into these, I mean, you call them treasure chests? Is it that that draws you to using them yourself? Or is it. I, I think I just think that way. I, I started mm. reading those kinds of stories very early on, mm. and it was the great age of illustrated children's fairy tales. So the French ones, the English ones, the ones collected from around the world, the Andrew Lang pink, red, yellow, blue, purple, white, gray books of fairy stories for the complete Grimm's, which arrived in the 40s before the Disneyfication age of the 50s in mm. which everything was pink and princesses and it all came out okay. So the collected Grimm's have got the gouged out eyeballs and pieces yeah. of corpses falling down the chimney. And I absorbed those at a pretty early age. Mm. Add to that the world of comics. Superheroes are pretty straight takeover from mythic Greek figures. Captain Marvel has a magic word, Shazam. Let's see if you can name those people as the initial letters of a lot of classical heroes. So we, we had books of classical mythology retold, and I was stuck into the Robert Graves collection pretty early on, and since I was doing Latin, of course, we had to read the Iliad and the Odyssey because mm -hmm. You can't do the Aeneid without knowing that story. Um, and that takes you into Greek, myth uh, sorry, Egyptian mythology. And uh, it's all pretty extensive. 
recently added, we've had Gilgamesh and the Inanna song cycle, which is about Inanna's descent to the underworld. Had a pretty interesting story. So that probably brings us to the Penelope ad, and why did I do that? Well, I suppose, why did you do it? And also, how did you choose to, I suppose, write it in the way that you did, so integrating okay. the chorus? Okay. And... When I was in high school, as I said, we read the Iliad and the Odyssey to have the back story for doing the Aeneid. And the Odyssey really bothered me mm. at that age from the point of view of the maids. If you read that text very closely, you realize that these people were basically coerced by the suitors, and and then they were honor-killed. So, not their fault. The, the thing that annoyed Odysseus is that they didn't recognize him when he turned up as a mangy old tramp. But if he had turned up as a mangy old tramp when Odysseus was king, he probably would have behaved much the same way. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they didn't they didn't treat him well when he was the mangy old tramp, and, and that was unkind. But what they really got killed for was sleeping with the suitors, though they had no choice. So that's that bothered me a lot. And the initial passage in which they get, I mean, the final passage in which they all get strung up, like washing on a line, and that, that very poignant sense, their, their feet twitched, but not for long. So I had them as the chorus. I felt that they should have something more to say. Fair enough. Don't you think? I, yeah, I, I, do think. Was, I do think. I thought it was fair enough. Uh, and the other thing that always bothered me was, was Penelope, because there she was in charge of everything. She was running the show. And in the Odyssey, it, it is the original uh, Western movie in which the fort is being defended. The cavalry is riding to the rescue, but neither side knows that. Mm. So the fort does not know that the cavalry is riding to the rescue, and the cavalry's riding to the rescue doesn't know what a close thing it is. Mm. So there's a lot of suspense. Will he get there in time? And just at the moment when she's about to capitulate or, or set a task, which she knows actually the suitors won't be able to do, so she's not really capitulating. But just at that moment, who should turn up? <laughs> Ta-da! But Odysseus! Hooray! <laughs> we we're so happy. Yeah. Um, but then he does this horrible thing at the end by hanging the maids. He's a very tricky character. He's cunning. He's manipulative. He lies. Mm. He disguises himself. Uh, he's got two patron gods, and you can tell about people's characters by who their patron gods are. Yeah. And one of them is Hermes. One of them is Athena. She's an interesting goddess in her own right. She she likes him because he's crafty. Mm. And at one point she says, oh, Odysseus, you're just really so amazing. You're trying to lie even to me. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It's quite telling. That's <laughs> right. So Hermes, he's the god of communication, but he's also the god of thieves, money exchanges, travelers, Mm. jokes, lies, and the opener of doors. So that's why we use the word hermetic. Secrets that are closed behind doors, that comes from Hermes. And he is the conductor of the souls to the underworld, so he can move between two worlds. If you have tricky problems to solve, 
you would call upon Hermes. Mm. He's not very honest. So that those were some of the things at play. And uh, I love the that scene where Penelope and Odysseus get together again, mm. each one of them having lied themselves blind for yeah. years. Yeah. And then they tell the stories of how they've been spending the last yeah. little while. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. They're each telling a good yarn. <laughs> how believable is it? So when you know that you're dealing with a tricky person, how much trust are you to repose in that person? We do, tr- we do trust Penelope because it is the underworld. So she's got no skin in the game for telling falsehoods at that moment. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Margaret Atwood then. Eleanor, what was that phone call like? That phone call was extremely interesting and extremely challenging not to ask lots and lots of things about things which would definitely be spoilers for the book. <laughs> In fact, I got told off a couple of times and then edited out the questions I'd asked. So. Did you succeed in not fangirling at her? I did, I think. You'd have to ask her. <laughs> so after all these interviews and these stories and the research we've done, how do we feel differently about myth? I think previous to doing this episode... I looked on myth as a bit more of a static thing, whereas I think doing this and hearing the things from Banyan Theatre and Oscar, obviously the work that Margaret Atwood had been doing and Marcello, it's it's uh, brought it to life more for me. Yeah, I especially liked what Marcello was saying about um, the plurality of these things and how they're des- not designed to be, but they by nature are, they mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people and transmutate every time they're told. And it, it really is interesting to think about that in terms of all stories and all arts because with adaptations but also people retelling these stories or or updating them for modern day it's wonderful to think that there are things that are still a bit mysterious even though we can look everything up online now so of course you can look up every possible interpretation that we have recorded of every single ancient myth or even uh, books that have fallen out of print but unless you know somebody who has a copy or who heard or saw something told its original form there is still something that's untapped some knowledge that isn't quite definite in the world, which I think is hmm. quite magical. Yeah, I think that thing about movement is really important. And something that came up actually in in pretty much all the content is this idea of myths being a receptacle. So not only something that we can pour our own sort of hopes and fears and current concerns into, but that the very nature of which, if we use myth and something and a mythos as a tool, it somehow elevates whatever we're talking about. So if we're talking about, if we're writing a modern story about any human vice or virtue or anything, putting it within a context of myth immediately connects us to this huge history of people. And I think it's it's quite levelling in that way. It reminds us that we're not special just because we're modern. We've spoken to a lot of people who have adapted things that are older. Do we think about, uh, differently about work that is being original work, which is being written today, and how that's going to last in a mythological tangent in the future? It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's something I love about reading old plays or reading about old productions of plays. Mm. Is I'll never see that, and it's quite lovely. And you know, but even then, now you have things like National Theatre Live. Uh, I don't know if they store those recordings uh, for later broadcast or if they are just transmitted live and then forgotten. But there is something these days, especially with the way that uh, we document everything. So every single draft of every single piece of writing being that's been made in the last ten years and and now forevermore is on record. 
So there's far less room for error. But then things always appear in the margins. Things are little bits of minutiae. And I think that's something like uh, deleted scenes from films or Mm -hmm. scenes that were scrapped between productions of plays. These things still have that sort of mystery to them. And I think that, well, Margaret mentioned um, uh, superheroes and things like that. And I think the number of not always successful films you make out of Batman or Superman or Spider-Man and the fact that these are characters that, in this sort of modern day way, I think anything which deals with big operatic themes like that is going to be, and possibly in a broad way, maybe, you know, especially in terms of comics and, and superheroes, but in terms of big characters that stand for something quite quintessential, these do linger and last. And something like Harry Potter, which is quite a relatively minor canon of work in the grand scheme of things, it's only six books. These worlds and these these characters that are, by their very nature, designed to stand for a lot of things and a lot of big themes, even if only sort of implicitly, it's it's still being done. And I think that we'll still have a great legacy of myths and legends from our time when we're looking back from the Oryx and Crake times. It strikes me that one thing that has come up a lot about myth is that obviously it's reflective of a way people would explain something. When we're talking about ancient myths, it's a way of explaining why the sun looks the way it is or um, explaining why the sea moves as it does. And it's interesting that when we think about assumptions we probably have now, and certainly assumptions that we have possibly redressed from 200 years ago or 50 years ago or something, whether it's about women or about anything, it's kind of interesting to speculate about what we believe now that future generations will think, what a strange way of explaining how that is. Why would you computate that like that? And I wonder if that will be the stuff of myths of our time thanks so much from all of us for listening to our little contribution to the oral tradition if you'd like any more information on anything you've heard full episode notes can be found at storyetcpod.com if you've got a lead on an interview subject you'd like to share or a short story or play you think we might like to produce or if you have any feedback on our program please do email storyetcpod at gmail.com we want to hear your stories too If you're enjoying our programme, it would be lovely if you'd leave us a nice review on iTunes, Stitcher or your podcast platform of choice. It all really helps us spread the word. And make sure you subscribe too, so you can be the first to get our next episode. Secret. Story Etc. Episode 2, Myth, was produced and presented by Tom Crowley, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill marson who also composed the music. Banyan Tree Theatre's songs were composed and performed by the company. Our guests this month were Marcella Ward, Oscar Jensen, Nyawa Bottomley and Adriana Lord of Banyan Tree Theatre, and Margaret Atwood. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening. <laughs>